Um, it's kind of interesting. Um, when I was at uh, Fordland and preaching, uh, one of the people said, uh, are these sermons you've preached at Franklin County? I said, no, I put these together just for you guys. Well, you better preach those at Franklin County because those are good lessons. Now, I don't know if they're good lessons, but we're going to kind of work them into our Sunday evenings as we go. And uh, since we already dealt with on a Wednesday kind of the idea of worry, I won't start with the first uh, lesson because you guys already know God says, what about worry? Don't do it. Okay, we got to turn that over to God. And we've talked about plenty of times before, worry's never done anything positive. It will damage you uh, emotionally. It will damage you uh, physically. It will damage you spiritually. Uh, worry won't do you any good. And it's so easy to fall into that trap and then let worry. And, you know, we use the word worry when we're concerned or care, and that's different. But when worry affects you to the point that you're not doing what you should do and you're all distraught, and you got to find, you got to remember what you can, you really have no effect on. Uh, but I can pray to God and trust in Him and know He knows everything and He will take care of it. But I chose to, so my title for that um, gospel meeting was Don't Worry, Be Happy. <clears throat> and I like to be happy. And do you know happy looks like this, not like this? So if you look like this, that don't look happy to me. Smile once in a while, because my mom would have said this, you keep looking like that, your face might freeze like that. I think I've met people whose face will freeze like that because it never looks any different. But we do have to have a very positive disposition. And the way to do that is to stay focused on that which is eternal. I don't know what's going to happen to us physically. I don't know what's going to happen to anybody. You know, I don't know what's going to happen to me. But I always think about this now. I don't usually do this during a sermon, but I'm going to ask you if you would, raise your hand if you want to be blessed by God. Well, good. Dennis just read a whole passage that says what you need to do to be blessed by God. It, and I want you to think about this. The first gospel sermon, the first sermon that uh, Jesus preaches in his ministry is known to us as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's account, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's 110 verses long. But I want you to know where he starts off. And I thought it was interesting, years ago, I don't even remember where I first read it. I've seen it a few times then. That word blessed or blessed there, it really says blessed. But it carries with it the idea of heavenly happiness. Not just physical happiness, but heavenly happiness. You know, if you're, when your children are born, you're happy. When they obey the gospel, you have heavenly happiness, something that's for eternity. Uh, so there's a difference. So, you know, I, I'm more than happy to pray for anybody's physical health. But still, I, you know, you ask me to do that. I'm going to pray about the thing that's most important, and that's who they are spiritually. I don't have time to turn, but I think about Paul. In one of his letters, he prayed that the man's spiritual health would be as good as his physical health. Those of you who heard me a little while know that every once in a while I say, if your spiritual, if your physical health was the same as your spiritual health, would you be walking around today or in the hospital in a near coma? You know, we need to think about that. We need to be strong spiritually. We need to take care of ourselves spiritually. Now, let me show you a few things in the Sermon on the Mount, though. They didn't stand up and preach in those days. Everyone else stood up, so you guys would be standing and I'd be seated. 
That's what happens so many times. You can see in the Sermon on the Mount, it'll say Jesus went up on the mountain and he was seated. The guy in authority is the one that takes seat. If you went before the king, you stood up or bowed down, but he was seated. And so being seated showed authority. Now I want you to know, so it starts off showing his authority, but turn with me over to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, just right here at the end of Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the sermon, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. I wonder what was so amazing about it a lot. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Was he convicted in what he said? Did he give it? You know, I want to show you something else in the Sermon on the Mount that shows Jesus about to change everything. This sermon is so important. Jesus is about to change everything. He's part. He's Jewish. So he practices Judaism, just as it's taught in the Old Testament. Judaism was overseen by older people. Elders, sometimes prophets, but elders. So older people. Now think about this movement behind Jesus. So you got this 30-year-old carpenter. Not a guy who'd been in their schools, a 30-year-old carpenter. And he picks 12 men who probably all but one of them was younger than him. So I want you to think about this. You're these old cronies, and you've uh, been ruling the roost, and you've been making sure everything. And these, this 30-year-old guy with a bunch of 20-somethings come in, they're going to change the whole game. Well, what do these young bucks think they're Who do they think they are? Well, Jesus starts off. In his first sermon, I want to show you a couple things here before we get into the Beatitudes, and I won't take much time. But look at 5, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Some of these I'll show you both. Sometimes I'll just go on. Verse 21, you have heard that, it, that the ancients were told, and he's going to quote scripture, you shall not commit murder. Oh, that sounds like one of the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. But I say, is Jesus about to change what things are going to be? Where's, he, where's the authority coming from? Him. But I say. Now, if you jump on down to 27 and 28, he says, you have heard you shall not commit adultery. That was the old law. That's, but I say to you, it doesn't just happen then. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, it's as though you already committed adultery. And you go on down. I won't read all these, but verse 32, he says, but I say. In verse 33, in verse 34, he says, but I say. And in verse 39, he says, but I say. And in verse 44, he says, but I say. Now, I want you to know, Jesus just changed, put the religious world on their head. He said, let me tell you what. This is what it said. It's all going to change. You know why? Because I said so. Now, you think about the miracles Jesus worked. What were they about? Oh, they were just a sideshow for entertainment. They were for one purpose. The purpose was to confirm that the word he spoke was God's word and there was no question, was it from God? It wasn't to draw attention. It, and I want you to know, it wasn't even really about making sick people well. It wasn't really just about feeding people. It was to show to you that whatever Jesus said, he had this miraculous power, so you best listen to what he says. He can do things nobody could do. And so he's going to say that all this teaching, I remember in going to preacher schools years ago and we would go to preaching class and everything. And I remember uh, 
Dayton Cassie, one of my instructors, very he, very systematic speaker, you know, he talked about, well, you guys, you don't want to get lost with too many points in your sermon. You pick an introduction and try to bring them into that, then get into this, maybe make you a few points with one main point, and then conclusion and drop it off at the end. And I say, could you explain to me how the Sermon on the Mount met? He covered so many things in one sermon, it is unbelievable. But I want to tell you, I believe the main thing he's just trying to get in point, from now on, what I say goes. And so, in the very beginning of it, he says, but the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit. This is going to talk about someone who has humility. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think about... Um, James 4 and verse 10, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, old Skylar, she's funny on lots of levels. Uh, but, you know, she likes to show you she can jump. You say, Tyler, see you jump. What she do? Jumping around there. I say, jump as high as you can. Do you know I can lift her a lot higher than she can jump? Just so you know, God can lift us all a lot higher than we can jump. We just got to trust him. Now, she'll let me take her and do that. You say, you're not throwing me around like that, Kim. I don't trust you. So you look at that. It takes a certain amount of trust to allow someone to do that to you, doesn't it? That's why a lot of people, you know, let's say that today I get a deal, and we can all go out here, and a guy that flies a plane has parachutes is going to let every one of us jump out of the plane in a parachute, on a parachute. Now, some of us are going to be good with that, and some of you say, I'm not going, Kendall. I'm not going. I'm not even going on a plane, let alone jump out of a parachute. Who would jump out of a perfectly good airplane? So people look at that. Well, I guarantee you, says, is this a parachute backpack? I'm not real sure. Just try it. Uh, no, I want to be sure. I want to know this is right. I know that's going to work. Well, this gets down to trusting in God, doesn't it? You've got to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. And he's going to exalt us at the proper time. But he doesn't, I don't have time to cover all these in depth. I just want to see we're to have heavenly happiness, even we're to humble ourselves before God and know something. We've got something to be happy about because he's going to take care of us. And then it says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. You know, the world mourns all about the wrong things. And they look the wrong place for comfort. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. We're, you know, the Bible's kind of backwards to everything else. I like that idea of be comforted. You guys remember this fella that we read about? I'm not going to return to it. I'm turning to something else if you're wondering what I'm turning to. But I want you to think a little bit. You guys remember this rich man and this fella named Lazarus in Luke chapter 16? Now, I want you to think about old Lazarus for a minute. He was in quite a fix, wasn't he? In pitiful condition. But obviously, he had faith in God and was obedient to God, obviously, by the outcome of the story. doesn't really cover it a lot in the story, but by the outcome, it covers it. But I want you to think about, so 2,000 years ago, approximately, Jesus told that story about a man named Lazarus and a rich man. And so Lazarus had this terrible existence here on this earth. 
He was out in the elements because he didn't have a roof to put over his own head. He didn't have food to eat. And he was a disgusting thing to look at. Had boils. He was so weak. Think how nasty that is. You got all these oozing sores and you can't even shoo the dogs off. They're coming and licking your... Oh, man. And let me tell you what, in those days, dogs weren't much people's pets. They were just a bunch of stinking scavenger animals, except in very rich palaces. And those people weren't going to feed a dog because they barely had enough food to feed themselves. So this picture of this dog, we're not talking about your little lap dog that's coming up to you. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this gross little scavenger animal, and he's licking on your sores, and you don't have the strength to run him off. And he dies, and the angels carry him off to Abraham's bosom. That would be a very Jewish teaching. And he's going to be comforted. What's he doing right now? What's Lazarus doing right now? 2,000 years later, you know what he's doing? Still being comforted. His life here might not have been too comfortable, but he didn't live to be 2,000 years old here. So I don't know how old he lived, but not real old, I wouldn't think. Let's even say he lived way old for that age for him there and lived 70 or 80. I hope he didn't have to exist that pitiful way for 70 or 80 years. But then he went to be comforted. I think whenever you talk about a passage about comfort, I think uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is interesting. Uh, if you want to ever, if everyone, you want to look at a passage about comfort, you need comforted, you need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Because from verse 3, to verse uh, 7, the word comfort is found 10 times. Now, there's no place in the Bible that mentions comfort near as much as this passage. So verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which ourselves is being comforted. For just as the suffering of Christ is ours and above, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it's for your comfort. He just says, man, I'm telling you what, this is all about everything that happens in the gospel. It's all about comfort. You ever heard of comfort food? Now, I'm sure comfort food is uh, probably Brussels sprouts and cauliflower, right? If that's your comfort food, someone needs to pop you in the head. But no, you look at that. That's not comfort food. People say that's healthy food. Well, it's healthy food I'm not going to eat because I don't like either one of them. But anyway, no, you look at that. Comfort. When you're hurting on whatever level in whatever situation, if someone can offer some comfort, it's great, isn't it? I'll tell you a story that's kind of interesting. You know, you know how people get scared about things? We were in an airplane flying back from Seattle to Alaska years ago to Anchorage, and we got caught in some extreme turbulence. I mean, like that plane, it didn't just drop a little bit. It dropped for a long time, whoom, and then hit the bottom. I mean, hundreds of feet. It's like, whoa, man, you watch them wings, whoa, and everyone in there, oh, and everyone's there. But not Caleb. He's a little boy, and he thinks we're on a ride, and a, let's do it again, let's do it again. Everyone in the plane would kill him. You know, but you look at that, you could see those people when they got on the ground, they were happy. They were comforted. Their feet were back on the ground. You know, when you can't control something, 
You think about those that mourn in this world, those who aren't treated the way they should be in this world because Satan is in control of so many people. Don't worry. You got the same comfort coming to you that came to Lazarus. And that's available in Jesus Christ. How important is that? And then he doesn't just talk about those who mourn will be comforted. He goes ahead then and says, those that are blessed are the gentle. You want to be happy, be a gentle person. You know, in Galatians 6 and verse 1, it talks about those who are spiritual should restore those who've been overtaken in the fault. And it says, lest you be too be tender. You need to look at yourself, lest you be too be tender. But one of the attitudes you need to come in, you need to come in the spirit of gentleness. Wow. I still like to, you get a little kid that's about 18 months old, hand them a little bitty kitten, a little baby kitten. Oh, they're so glad to get that little kitten. And they're just so easy and nice to it, aren't they? Oh, they see that thing, they just want to squeeze it. And all things, scratch them and carry it on. It wants loose. Now, if you're an adult and you squeeze that cat till it scratches you, that's your own fault. But they're not wanting to hurt the little kitten. They just can't control themselves. They don't yet know how to be gentle, do they? There's no excuse for adults not knowing how to be gentle. Some people, you know, when they're always harsh and always have a sharp edge, you know what they tell me? You know what excuse they use? That's just how I am. They don't tell me that much because I said, well, then you need to repent. They can like it or not because that's what they need to do. They need to repent because we shouldn't have a sharp edge on us all the time. Didn't Jesus say, and I'm going to read it to you over here in Matthew chapter 11, um, that when we are going, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He goes on and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Who are we supposed to learn from? Check Jesus out. Doesn't mean he never took a stand, didn't make he didn't have strong convictions, because of course he did. And then Philippians 4 and verse 5 says this about us. Think about this. This is the reputation we should have. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. Is that me? Let your gentle spirit be known to all. So definitely, if you want to have heavenly happiness, if you want to be blessed by God, you've got to have a humble heart, be poor in spirit. You've got to maybe at times mourn here on this earth because you're a godly person living in an ungodly world, but you'll be comforted. You've got to be gentle even though maybe no one else is. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? For they shall be filled. To be honest with you, you know, if we showed up next week and no one brought a meal, no one brought any food. Now, I'm telling you, well, I'm starving. That's what someone would say that. If you say that, you don't have a clue what starving is. Missing one meal, you ain't starving. You don't even know what hungry is. Even if you miss a whole day of eating, you still don't know what hungry is. When it's talking, it's saying, man, if I don't get something, I'm not going to be able to go on anymore. People think that. Well, I'm falling over. No, you're not. You can go several days without food. It won't hurt you a bit. Now, if you're diabetic, you got to watch that because of blood sugar level and everything. But people that don't have things like that, we could miss three days and it would really have little to no effect on us. Might have good effect on us. Because typically, typically, I can't even say it today. Anyway, 
we're going to understand that we store more calories in our body than we need. Probably a lot more calories than are good for us. But hunger and thirst. Can you imagine what that'd be like? Here you are. You think about it, they lived in a desert. If you travel in a desert, how important is it to bring water with you? And if you don't have water for a day and you're out in the middle of the desert, John, he's, he's played on those big beaches. The only thing in them beaches, there's no, no water. Just a lot of sand. And, it, you know, they say, well, it's a dry climate. It'll eat your lunch. And that dry climate will take every bit of moisture out of you there is. And in the long run, believe it or not, that dry climate is harder on your ability to retain water in the long run because it just zaps it out of you. That's where they lived. But it says we got a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You guys know one of my favorite passages over in Romans 14, verses 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for ourselves, not one of us dies for ourselves. Whether we live or we die, we are Lord's. Man, I'm telling you, it's all about that. You know, the few times in my life I've not been able to come together on the first day in worship, I'm telling you, it tears my guts out. I just can't hardly stand it. I feel so sorry for people like Kim, for instance, who wants to be here so bad. And I mean, not one week, not even sometimes two. I can't even imagine how devastating that is to her. I mean, I look at that, I think about that. It's just when I miss one whole week, it's just like, man, it's like, like it's hard to even keep my head centered where it needs to be in it. You know, you just miss it. I can't hardly wait to come back. You know, you heard O'Corey say when there's gospel meetings, that's just bonus time. Well, he took another bonus day because he came down and listened to me on Tuesday. But he came down because he needed a good nap. But he came down anyway. But I want you to think about that. Thirst for righteousness. We've talked about this so many things. What's righteousness? Doing the right thing. James 4, 17 still says, The one that knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. So if I know it's the right thing to do, I have to do it. I have to do it to be blessed by God. Do we always do the right thing? Or sometimes do we just not do the wrong thing and think that's good enough? Not only do you not do the wrong thing, you do the right thing. And we have to do that. And then he talks about the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How bad do you need mercy? Well, I've sinned and... I know Romans 3.23 says, I've sinned, says you have too. Said what we both deserve is a death sentence. The wages of sin is death, right? We're not talking about physical death. We're talking about something much greater, spiritual death. We're talking about going to hell. So I need God to be merciful to me, to not give me what I deserve. Well, I can only have that forgiveness of sin and receive mercy and grace, which grace is getting heaven. Mercy is getting me out of hell. I want them both. I want to get out of hell and go to heaven. So I want mercy and grace. But he says, now, Kendall, if you're going to get mercy from God, you can't hold everything people do against them. Isn't that what merciful is? And when they ask for forgiveness, well, they don't deserve it. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Any sin God has forgiven you, how many of them have you deserved he forgave you for? You've never deserved forgiveness. But you asked for it. You obeyed the gospel. Then you confessed your sin and repented. And he is faithful and he forgave your sins. But if you want his mercy, you have to show mercy. Wow. 
Turn with me one passage on that point. Turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 9, and I especially want to pay attention to verse 10. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Amen to that. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I don't want to be kept under uh, punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed. Wow. So we think about that. He says, let's know that God knows how to rescue us from all unrighteousness. But then you go back over and go to the same verses, but this time in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race. And that almost sounds wrong to say something like that in our culture today, doesn't it? Uh, we are a chosen race. We're Abraham's spiritual family. And I think I still belong to the human race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? Why am I those things? So that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now are, you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Because you're a part of God's family. And then he goes on, if you look back at Matthew chapter 5, and he talks, and I'm going to move pretty fast here, that we are the pure in heart. Purity. Purity. Does that pretty much typify most people in the world today? They just, they're pure people. Uh, no. How about in our speech? Do we need to be pure in our speech? Now, I'd say this all the time, and I'll tell you, and this is a fact, and so... But I think of Ephesians 4 and verse 29. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for the edification of the moment. Hmm. Gives grace to those people. Now, I grew up with a mom who I never heard in all my life my mom use any word that any human would ever have considered questionable. I mean, no word that anyone would even consider questionable. You know, there. if you use a word and it makes people cringe, maybe you ought not use it. Well, it's okay. If you got to argue it, you probably ought not use it, right? That's just how easy it is. Why use a word that's going to make people cringe? And I always tell people, you know, I've learned this through my life. Being a young, when I was a young preacher, is if I really wanted to know I was on stable ground, I'd talk to old members, 70, 80-year-old members. Because... You know, people say, well, they're just, they're just old-fashioned. I'll tell you what they are. They're mature. And they didn't do questionable stuff. Well, they wouldn't use that word. Well, then I probably ought not to use that word. You know, let no one, they're going to, they're, well, some people might not consider that pure. Well, I want to be, I don't want to live on the edge. You know one thing about the edge? If I take you to the Grand Canyon, who all's going with me if I'm going to pay the way? But you got to get out, and when that railing there, you got to step right around the edge of the railing, hold the railing, and look out. Some of us are still good at that. Some of us say, you're nuts. Well, you know what? If you stay on the other side of the railing, there's no chance of falling. If you lean out there and you lose your grip, say, well, John said he'd go. There went John. It was good to know him. We call him Spot now. You know, but no, you look at that. 
And, but people live out there all the time spiritually on the edge. The world's out here and they live right on the edge. Why don't you live here where it's safe? Do what you know safe and sound. Wouldn't that be the smart thing to do? Wouldn't that be the wisest decision we could make? We've got to be pure. We've got to be pure in everything we do. Isn't it interesting? Even in James 1 and verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. Well, it mentions the idea of taking care of visiting orphans and widows. And you know what the next part says? Keep oneself unstained. You've got to stay pure. You know, we don't decide how we dress, how we talk, our entertainment by looking at the world. It's messed up. I'm telling you, it's messed up. I always think about that. If I could take some old timers that I've known that have been dead and gone for years and years, maybe when they died when I was a kid, and I could resurrect them from the grave and turn on the television, they'd pick that TV and throw it outside. And they would tell you, y'all need to get rid of every computer and every phone you got because there's a bunch of garbage on there. There is a bunch of garbage on there. You got to make sure you don't use it for that. You know, you can turn them off. You can decide where you're going. You can decide all those things. But we get sucked in after a while. You know, I talked to a guy, I don't know, it's been a while. And I said, yeah, Tammy and I, I'm not into going movies or anything. I said, if we do, Tammy usually goes to screenit.com first and see. He says, yeah, I went to this movie. Man, there's no, no profanity in it. Man, like there was 300 and some words of profanity in that movie. He said, well, I never noticed it. Isn't that sad? Got a brother in Christ. They use it so, he's around it so much he doesn't even notice it's used. Let me tell you what, brothers and sisters, if we don't watch out, we live in a world where we can become so accustomed to sin, we don't even know it's sin. That's why we got to use this. And so we got to stay on the purity side of things. Not as dirty as the next one, pure. There's a big difference. So then he goes on and he talks about the peacemaker. Huh, the peacemaker, for they shall be called children of God. Turn with me to a passage on that. Turn over to Philippians 4 just real quick peacemaker that's someone who's not only you know a lot of people say well i want world peace well he's really talking about getting people where they have the peace that passes understanding you know no matter what happens you're still at peace because you're at peace with god but in philippians 4 and verse 7 it says and the peace of god which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus we use that today for guarding our hearts but you think about that what peace do we need I don't need the peace. Don't I, I here here I am right here. Enjoying the peace that our military men and women have allowed me to enjoy. I know who's allowed this. I didn't go over there. No one shot at me. I didn't have to live in those situations. I know have and great some of them have given life and limb. I I'm enjoying benefits at their cost. I know that. So so when they play that that national anthem it angers me when people show disrespect to that playing that i mean it just it lights me up and it doesn't light me up because i think the song's magical but i know what it represents and i know who it re what it represents to who and so it just like man no respect we have no respect for anything it seems like but i think about he's talking about the peace that i do have the privilege of bringing to people even if they live in the most volatile country that ever existed on the earth, if they can have peace with God because they're in Christ Jesus, they have the peace that will last for eternity. Wow. I think we live in such a peaceful society, sometimes we don't know the benefit of it. Wow. 
I do have to show respect to those who brought it. Well, the peace of God comes through Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And then 10 and 12. Ooh, all well, they're tough ones. I think about that when it says you're blessed in verse 11. Well, even in verse 10, when you're persecuted. Oh, yeah, I just feel so blessed every time someone persecutes me. I feel so blessed every time. Uh, and I'm just rejoicing and glad every time I'm persecuted like the prophets. No, but you need to... But you notice what he says? Your reward is where? In heaven. Did he promise you're going to be rich here? You're going to be richer than your neighbors? He promised that? Did he promise you'll never be sick? You know, I always used to tease people all the time and talk about being sick and stuff. And I said, well, being sick, that's against my religion. What? I said, well, I never read about Jesus being sick one time. Just because he didn't say he was doesn't mean he wasn't, okay? I'm just having fun with him. But he didn't promise me that I wouldn't be. I can show you all kinds of faithful Christians who got sick. I can show you faithful Christians who were persecuted even to the point of death. I always like to use. I can't even imagine what it would be like. I don't want to ever experience it. You're preaching a sermon after that, they're throwing rocks at you till they beat the life out of you with them. But he goes from pain to comfort like that. Never to receive any pain again. But even in the midst of all the pain, remember, oh, Stephen, in the midst of all the pain, he's still concerned about the people who are killing him, their souls. They're lost. They think they're hurting me. They don't know what pain is yet. Wow. Now, is that a peacemaker or what? So I think about the importance of us making sure we have that. So it says, be glad. Turn with me before we wrap all this up. Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. I love Acts 2, always have. But here's brethren, okay? They're brand new Christians. They've only been Christians a short time. They obeyed the gospel. They've been getting together and worshiping everybody. And then it says, and day by day, that means every day. That means they got together on Sunday. And you know what they did on Monday? They got together again. You know what they did on Tuesday? They got together again. I'm telling you, they didn't just do Sunday, Wednesday, did he? Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from... They had a meal together, just like we had a meal together. Also, we got biblical authority for sharing a meal together. Yeah. Now, they did it from house to house. Wasn't that interesting? This looks like a house. This is a church house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity. We're glad. Oh, it's good to sit down and share a meal with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're sincere about this. We're not faking it. We're, we really mean it. We're glad to be a part of it. And they were praising God. Isn't that what we want to do? We want to praise God. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Well, everyone there was here to praise God. It was making everybody, it doesn't make everybody in the world happy, but it makes us happy. Praising God and having faith with all the people. And you know what the Lord was doing? And he was adding to their number. Who was doing the adding? Oh, the church was adding. No, the church wasn't doing any adding. Was anybody joining the church? Have you ever seen that? Join the church of your choice. Yeah, do that. It won't work well. Because you can't join the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus. You can't join the church of Christ. You have to be added to it by the head, by the one who bought and paid for it, by the one who is the Savior of that body. So the Lord himself was adding, this is, this is one of the places that I don't like the New American Standard as much. I, I agree with it, but I like it better said the other way. Because it said they was adding to their number. But I know the Greek word there is ekklesia, which is typically translated church. Well, if we say 
we, we're adding to our number these people, or we're adding to the church these people. It is the same, but I still like to just use the word church. I'm not afraid of the word church. Did you know that? I'm not afraid of the word church of Christ. I'm proud of the word church of Christ. You know, some people, where are you, where, where are you a member at? Well, yeah. I'm, I'll tell them right off of and I'm a member of the church of Christ. Matter of fact, we meet in Grace Summit. We're called the Franklin County Church of Christ. And the best people in this part of the state of Missouri worship right there. And the people who want to do God's will, and we go by the book and only the book. And I like to use this statement with people. You know, they say, well, what? You know, can you tell me about how the church there works? Yeah. We do what the Bible says, everything the Bible says, and we don't do anything it doesn't say. You and I have got to make sure we stay faithful to that statement. You know, we like it. We speak where the Bible speaks. But in a little while, if we don't watch out, that just becomes some kind of little flashy statement. God forbid we take it that way. You want to be blessed by God? Take time every once in a while to go over to Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, and understand in the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, the first thing he talks about, you want to be blessed by God? Here's who you got to be. And this is what you've got to do. And remember this, I'm not talking about blessing you here. Your reward is in heaven. If you're not right with God, if you need to ask for the prayers of the church, if you are weak and we can help you to be strengthened, please come as we stand and sing.